This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B A H A I.org. Or you can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. I was recently at a conference called Cultivating Spirituality at the Baha'i Conference Center named Greenacre in Elliott, Maine. One of the presenters at the conference was Elena Mustakova-Pozart, a Bulgarian educator who came to the United States when communism fell in Eastern Europe to study at the University of Massachusetts. She focused her doctoral studies on the subject of critical consciousness, integrating the heart with the intellect. I was able to pull her aside during the conference to have a few minutes to interview her for a Baha'i perspective. The interview is very on location, so you hear the comings and goings of the conference participants during the interview. I started the interview by asking Elena to describe where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Bulgaria and uh, in, in the capital, Sofia. Bulgaria is a small country, a very, very beautiful country. In fact, people in Europe refer to it often as the small Switzerland because it has high alpine mountains and very fertile Chernozem, black soil. So it was, uh, before the communist revolution, it was really a very um, prosperous agricultural country with a lot of tourism. It also has the Black Sea, and so it has the Alpine Mountains for skiing and the Black Sea resource that really attracts, it's an excellent climate, attracts a lot of tourism from Central and North uh, Europe. During communism, however, it was uh, forcefully industrialized, and uh, that brought on a lot of pollution and all kinds of other problems. And that's where I grew up. It is a country that is uh, very well educated. That was uh, one thing that during communism just everybody got an education. Highly uh, educated and uh, professional society. with uh, challenges that come from that because Mm. uh, in terms of fulfillment and development the opportunities were very limited and so many Bulgarians after the fall of the Berlin Wall really scattered all over the world so the small country of about 8 million is now down to about 7 million Oh really? Yeah, about one. So one eighth of the population has left the country, and that's of course uh, mostly the the people who felt they had more that they could offer uh, and develop than what was possible in mm. Bulgaria. So, uh, yeah. You grew up there through primary school and secondary school. Yes, and high school yes. And I um, I actually uh, got my master's in Bulgaria at Sofia University, mm-hmm. and I traveled quite a bit uh, in that time. So I've traveled mm-hmm. to various parts of the world. Have lived in Arab Africa, mm-hmm. also in uh, um, the southern part of Africa in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Lived in the United Arab Emirates. Traveled traveled throughout Europe and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had that bounty to travel um, more than most people really had the opportunity to during communism because my father was a civil structural engineer and there was a practice in communist Eastern Europe to export specialists for hard currency. 
And so my father was one of those people, and I had that opportunity to travel and to uh, explore different parts of the world and mm-hmm. to uh, experience life in different parts of the world. And so questions of uh, motivation, human motivation, were always foremost in my thinking. Mm-hmm. I was always watching and observing and trying to understand why people do what they do. And as I grew older, the question became reframed as why do people betray each other so profoundly and and primarily themselves. So the question of of human motivation and betrayal was just really a central question in my life. And um, after doing a master's uh, at Sofia University in English language and literature, I I wanted to pursue literature further, was obstructed from graduate, further graduate study because uh, of my parents' non-membership in the Communist Party. So uh, I could not pursue that. I began teaching. But uh, in teaching adults intensive language acquisition of, of beginners, Um, It was actually a very interesting process because to take adults who are professional adults and to submerge them in an environment where they do not understand hardly anything and have to become proficient in about three to five months is actually a high-stress environment. And human motivations um, really come forth and become revealed in ways that nobody is prepared for. Mm -hmm. So it became a very intensive laboratory for study for me, for further study. And at that point, I um, began to more consistently pursue psychological investigations and uh, and then eventually found my way into uh, Amherst, Massachusetts mm-hmm. to do a doctorate in human development. So okay. that was my path. Now before we get to the United States, you mentioned that human betrayal was sort of a, I don't know, focus mm-hmm. for you. And I'm wondering yes. if there was a personal experience that sort of, oh. or what was it that made this such a motivating interest to you? Well, uh, living in communism, Mm. primarily, although not solely, but uh, living in a system that was based on human betrayal, in order to keep 8 million people in subjugation, in the case of small Bulgaria, much larger numbers in the case of the Soviet Union and other East European countries, Mm -hmm. you had to really develop a, a network of informers. And so that's how the state worked. It relied on a on a very sophisticated network of informants mm-hmm. who would be... Uh, so we grew up being told that the moment you uh, leave your doorstep, you really don't know who's listening to what and what will become reported. And one report is sufficient for you to get whisked away into a labor camp and never see another day in mm-hmm. your life again, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in freedom, in relative freedom. So I grew up with that, knowing that, you know, people disappear just because they've uh, um, made a joke on a bread line um, or things like that. And so the willingness of human beings to betray other human beings in such a way. And then, of course, the whole system was set up on, on a party um, on a party base, so whether mm-hmm. you were a member of the party or you had parents who were party members, communist party members, or not, made all the difference in terms of what you could or could not do, in t- including get to higher education. Um, mm. So, um, and and then the ability of people to do all that and to close an eye, and sometimes to close mm-hmm. both eyes, and to not ask questions in order to provide for their immediate family's comfort and security. Mm-hmm. was just astounding and, and you know we witnessed people disappear mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. so it was uh, the betrayal was pretty fundamental and, and it cut really deep into the fabric of, of anybody's life mm-hmm. um, and then when you have a system of, of such totalitarian oppression of course it filters on every level of human relationships so 
Women, for example, were doubly betrayed because communism claimed to give women their freedom and it freed them to vote and to work. But in the workplace, there was really this invisible uh, inferiority of women, which was completely unquestioned. Mm. Uh, and uh, a lot of party functionaries um, relied heavily on a very denigrating attitude to women and mm. the role of women, the public roles of women. And so really, and it, as I said, oppression and betrayal, systemic oppression and systemic betrayal really uh, pervasive. They, they permeate into the most private realms of, of family mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And so I experienced them on every level. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess I was particularly attuned to that. Mm -hmm. That was just the, maybe the gift that I was given, that that was mm -hmm. the one thing that really registered on me unfailingly on every level and mm -hmm. every aspect and variation of that really registered on me. And the question mm -hmm. of, how can we do this? What 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 makes us capable of that? What brings us to that? And for the longest time, I really thought that there's really two categories of people: the people that you can uh, trust and the people that you cannot trust. And the second is a much larger category, um, because in Eastern Europe, that was a matter of life and death. It wasn't a matter of intellectual preferences. It was really the difference between continuing to live freely the next day and not. Mm -hmm. So it's very very clear cut. And it was a long, long journey for me to discover through my studies and through my spiritual uh, journey, primarily, mm -hmm. that there's really no such division, that there is, there is a human continuum of mm -hmm. you know, our uh, understanding of ourselves and therefore unwillingness to betray ourselves and others and mm -hmm. greater and lesser degrees of that. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a, quite a process for me. Yeah. Now you said you traveled around the world because of your father's occupation. Yes. And you lived in these various countries for yes, some time, but they were also under the communist rule to some extent. No, yes, and not necessarily, not all of them were. Some of them were, but I really did see variations on the theme of betrayal wherever okay. I went. More mm -hmm. and more I discovered that mm -hmm. it was not just predominant in the communist world. Some of the countries mm -hmm. that I lived in were sort of friendly to the communist system, like Libya, for example. Mm -hmm. I was also I visited Russia, I saw a lot of Eastern Europe. But I also visited Western Europe and I visited and, and lived in other parts of Africa, as I said, and the United Arab Emirates and, and mm -hmm. those were not communist countries. Right. But I saw various forms of human right. betrayal and right. failure to ask the real questions, mm -hmm. which led me more and more to this mm -hmm. concept of critical consciousness that I devoted a lot of years to the study of. In, right. in, in Massachusetts, in western Massachusetts, right. um, yes. which turned out to be a spiritual phenomenon, really, and that's not what I thought. Zimbabwe was newly liberated when I went to live and work there. Um, it had been Rhodesia until just a few years mm -hmm. before I went, mm -hmm. and so I had the, the privilege to be able to teach in a uh, teacher training college, which was newly established. Well, it was uh, an old teacher training college, but it had newly opened to native Zimbabweans. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to teach the first generation of liberated young Zimbabwean teachers who were eager to go into the rural areas of Zimbabwe and teach the children mm -hmm. a liberated understanding of life. And it was shocking to me to see that these passionate young people who were seeking liberation and rejoicing at what they experienced or perceived as liberation at the time were every bit as willing to roll over people and to be oppressive with their own ideological beliefs as the ones that preceded them.
And I just saw before my eyes how a process began in Zimbabwe, which we now know has gone much further. Right. And I, it was just astounding how this human story of self-betrayal and therefore betrayal of others keeps repeating itself, mm. itself and playing out in various historical contexts. Uh, it just... It just mm. has to be understood in spiritual terms. That's yeah. what I came to realize. Interesting. You had a choice of leaving the country once communism fell in Bulgaria. Actually, I left the country about six months before communism fell. I went to Zimbabwe as a way of escape. Okay. Um, I could not stay any longer. And so I was determined to leave. And, and my family at the time left, the three of us, my husband uh, at the time and my son, we left. We went to Zimbabwe. We were in Zimbabwe when the Berlin Wall fell. Uh-huh. But at that point, I knew there was no going back. I wanted to continue my uh, pursuits and study critical consciousness and, mm. and, and this understand this, this human phenomenon. So I was determined to continue further with graduate school and, and study this. And you chose UMass? I uh, chose a number of universities in the United States, mostly in the Northeast. UMass was the one that made it most possible for me to come mm-hmm. by offering me an assistantship, which mm-hmm. made the, all the difference because I had no resources. And mm-hmm. so that was defining. I guess I was meant to be in that place. I see. What happened to you when you came to, uh, to UMass? Well, uh, I'll take a step back and tell you what happened to me when I came to the U.S. All right. To me, uh, U.S. and to most East Europeaners at the time, the U.S. really was a symbol of of freedom, the Mm -hmm. land of freedom, the land of democracy and freedom. And I was really shocked in my first few days in western Massachusetts walking the streets of Amherst to see what freedom had amounted to. And um, the words that I kept hearing, I had been schooled in British English, so I was uh, abruptly making the transition into American English. And the, the, the words that were most frequently used that I was hearing again and again was uh, fun, cool, and get. Interesting. And I just could not believe my ears. I couldn't, this made no sense. This, this in no way inscribed itself into my concept of uh, freedom, the way I had constructed freedom in the context of communism. It just seemed so uh, easy and undiscriminating and, and so casual and so disinterested in a way. And I just could not understand how freedom could possibly amount to this, so it was devastating. The first days for me were truly perplexing. And then I had this very interesting experience. I kept hearing on TV the word consumer, consumer, consumer. And the first few times I heard it, I thought, wow, this is really a self-critical and self-reflective country. Because of course in Eastern Europe to call somebody a consumer was a very negative term. Um, and I thought people are publicly, you know, criticizing tendencies in their culture, and, and that's really amazing that this culture is so publicly self-reflective until I began to realize that it was not used as a negative term, actually. It was used as a term of pride, a self-definition. We are a consumer society. And so this was when things began, the pieces began to fall into place, and I began to realize the extent to which this mass society has really um, actually taken away true freedom. Interesting. Or lost its, its, its way to true freedom. Mm-hmm. Or misunderstood it, or misconstrued it, or somewhere along the way gotten very, very, very detoured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I must say, it was really heartbreaking to me. I, there was nothing like what I expected to see. And that was immediate? That was instant. Those were my first impressions in the first few days, in the first week. Yes, those were the very first impressions. And so I found myself um, 
I wanted very much to study. I was really enchanted with the uh, environment at UMass, the opportunity for such freedom of investigation and support. Really, I'm so grateful to University of Massachusetts for its democratic commitment and for the fact that it really came forth and met people like me and made it possible for us to really explore to make that transition, which was so difficult to make. Um, now, what is it? In, what's in it for UMass to do to offer assistance to? Well, I to think they uh, attract lively minds and souls that are really searching and are willing to do the hard work, and good for them that they value that and are willing to do it. So, uh, yes, I think UMass has a, a reputation as a, uh, a university with very democratic commitments, and uh, it really does live up to it. To at least. I mean, it's all relative, of course, but sure. it does strive There's to live up to that. There's always room for improvement. But Certainly, but yeah, there is a clear commitment there. And so your studies were, again, uh, what, what were you going to pursue I, uh, I was accepted in the School of Education because initially I thought I was uh, wanting to understand uh, adult, lifelong um, education. But it clearly, uh, within the first semester, became clear that I was much more psychologically minded. My questions were much more psychologically minded than the program that I found myself in. So I transferred to human growth, to, to the human development program, mm -hmm. uh, and focused particularly on adult development and then on the study of consciousness. So my program actually evolved, my became self-tailored, and it evolved, and in the second part of it, um, the actual human development program at UMass was uh, um, tailored for, for closing, was uh, actually selected for closing uh, uh, with a number of other programs in uh, oh, really? the School of Education. Yes, it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, there were some really um, wonderful teachers at the time, and they continued working with me until I brought my studies to completion. And uh, mm. so I was very much, I had a lot of freedom in studying consciousness, and I mm. had a lot of external help. I worked with people from Harvard and uh, Radcliffe and uh, neighboring departments at, at UMass, and I, it, it just became my own pursuit. Mm -hmm. And I understand you oh. ran into the Baha'i faith in the Amherst? Yes, I did. Yes, did I did. Happen? Oh, as it most often happens, you know, we are sometimes not ready for the spiritual path, for a conscious and deliberate spiritual path until we've been really brought to our knees, and at least those of us who are very intellectually minded and kind of self-reliant, I have to say, that's how it was for me. I found myself on my knees in, in some very painful personal ways. And, uh, at the time? At the time, yes, in 1992. And one evening I was... Uh, I was in a very difficult place in my mm. personal life. Mm -hmm. I was single parenting my young son at the time, and there was a lot of really difficult. I was in the process of a divorce, right. and uh, it was extremely difficult. And mm. uh, I was invited to a fireside. Of course, I had no idea what a fireside was, but the only reason that I got attracted was because the topic was the conditions of women around the world. Mm. And I will never forget entering this beautiful home in Hadley, <laughs> with this uh, radiant, radiant, radiant Persian hostess who came up to greet me and joining this circle in this beautiful Persian living room. And the speaker was a Nigerian woman who was uh, briefly crossing uh, the United States from the east to the west coast, sharing her experiences teaching the Baha'i faith in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And she was an extraordinary woman. I will never forget her probably in her mid-50s, in native dress, with native headdress. She had the utmost dignity. She was just a presence of, of dignity, of benevolence, of staunch faith, of vision. 
Um, and I was just so taken because she was talking about the horrors that women undergo in Nigeria. And she was describing stories that were just really etched in my mind and heart. And yet there was not a trace of resentment or bitterness in the way she spoke. And I was sitting there, an angry young woman of 32, struggling to shed all the layers of oppression in my own life. And I could not for the life of me understand how this woman had been able to shed all bitterness in her life. I wanted to know that. And that's what really drew me. What had happened in her life that allowed her that level of freedom? Mm-hmm. I did not know that was possible until that night. Mm-hmm. What happened after that night? Wow. It was, it was a sense of homecoming that evening. Mm-hmm. I felt so at home in that circle. So intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, in every way at home. And I did not even know these people. Mm-hmm. And that was very mysterious. Now, what was your concept of the Baha'i faith from just that one evening? Did you think of it as a social movement? Did you think of it as a... I Honestly, I did not know what to think. The mm-hmm. one thing that I walked away with is an, an amazing sense of, of liberation and mm-hmm. enlightenment. And I wanted to know what more about what this is really about. That, that mm-hmm. level of liberation and enlightenment which mm-hmm. I experienced, what is that about? Mm-hmm. That's what I experienced. Mm-hmm. I saw degrees of liberation. I experienced them in a, in a, um, very, um, in a very practical way, just the presence of these people. It wasn't just what they were saying. It wasn't just the intellectual ideas floating in the room. I was already accustomed to a lot of really wonderful ideas, but it was, uh, it was the sense of the extent to which these ideas were actually lived, and these people were actually genuinely much freer than anything I had met, mm-hmm. much more open. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just that was a mm-hmm. real homecoming now were you raised as an atheist under the communist no, rule? No, not really um, well communism was certainly very atheistic but uh, I always had a, uh, an inherent sense of, of, of the spiritual nature of life and uh, there were some uh, there was some emphasis on eastern orthodox on Bulgarian orthodox practices um, but they were not particularly meaningful uh, as more than a sort of emotion to to bring you into a space where you can uh, maybe think about the unthinkable, and so for me, I was agnostic. I must say, I I, I always knew that there is uh, a much greater meaning to life than anything I can fathom, and I I had experiences of feeling that I'm drawing closer to that or seeking to draw closer to that, but I had no explicit um, philosophy other than a very existential agnostic one. Mm-hmm. So what happened after the first meeting? I began to read. Mm-hmm. I began to investigate. And it was astounding to me because mm-hmm. um, the ideas I recognized very much, it was astounding to discover that a messenger of God had come into this contemporary age mm-hmm. and had brought these ideas and more than the ideas, the understanding, the profound understanding behind them and the the spirit of power and liberation that went with that mm-hmm. to the whole of humanity. I had no idea that all of these values had anything to do with religion. That just really burst all of my assumptions of what is the pursuit of truth. Mm-hmm. I was... Uh, I was a very intellectually minded person and I thought the pursuit of truth was a really rational, linear endeavor. And I was beginning to encounter so much paradox and, and that was so liberating. So I began to study that li- paradox until the moment when my heart really felt it was changed and, and really mm-hmm. ready to embrace it. Mm-hmm. That meaning that you 
became a Baha'i? Yes. Yeah. And did that affect your pursuit in the education, in your education? It burst open what I was trying to understand. I had already identified the study of critical consciousness. Uh, I came in 1990. By the end of 91, I had identified my focus in the study of critical consciousness. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my my advisors were telling me, you know, this is going to be the work of a lifetime. This Mm -hmm. is like 10 dissertations in one. You better choose a piece for your dissertation. I kept saying, no, this is the only reason I'm here. It doesn't make sense for me to do anything less than that that's why I'm here so I will just have to do the whole thing but and so I was already well into the study of critical consciousness from uh, I was uh, preparing to do interviewing I was uh, uh, doing my lit review I was uh, taking intensive courses and um, but then as I launched on a spiritual path I began to see paradoxes I began to see things that I wasn't seeing before that mm. I began to realize that there was a lot more to this thing I was studying that it was much more of a spiritual phenomenon than anything I had thought it, it was not all about people being to th- able to think more consistently when I began the process I thought that most people betray themselves and others because they don't think it through consistently enough but then I began to realize that there's a the whole realm of motivation, and it has a lot, certainly the ability to think consistently and the commitment to do so are very important ingredients, but there's also the realm of the heart, the motivational realm, mm-hmm. and that psychology has very little to tell us about. At least everything that I searched and read really didn't even come close to uh, shedding light on, on the motivational realm, on the realm of the heart. Mm-hmm. And so my study became much deeper than anything I had imagined. And where are you at this moment with that <laughs> studying? <laughs> well, um, well, um, my book on critical consciousness got published in, 1990, in, ni- in 2003, I'm sorry. And what's the title of uh, the book? Critical Consciousness, Study of Morality in a Global Historical Context. And who's the publisher? Um, Greenwood Prager. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is a monograph, and uh, I feel that I've come to understand human motivation in, in ways that were that really would not have been available to me had I not opened my own heart to the spiritual path. Mm. Um, the journey continues, but what is most interesting for me now is how we access this human motivation, how we cultivate critical consciousness in daily life, in marginalized populations, in uh, in in uh, in wealthy communities that are really disempowered in in a whole range of other ways, um, even in people who like con- North America, yes, even in people who consider themselves religious and yet are really estranged from them from themselves, mm-hmm. or people who consider themselves liberated and very secular and are equally estranged. Um, I mean, how do we how do we access the human heart? in ways that really engage both mind and heart in an honest and harmonized or increasingly harmonized dialogue, Mm -hmm. inquiry. How do we do this? How do we foster this? How do we educate for critical consciousness? How we raise our children in in a way that that both liberates their minds and liberates their hearts? Because I've come to realize you cannot liberate a heart if you don't also liberate a mind, and you can't liberate a mind truly if you don't liberate a heart. Mm, so they're and very joined together. They are very joined together, and it breaks my heart that education has split them so, mm. so, so extremely. Um, 
We are letting down our children. Mm. I, I just resigned from an academic position just a month ago because I just, I just, we're not educating for, for our children to be really up to life in the 21st century. We're, we're teaching them how to be smart and how to juggle information, but they are disempowered at heart, increasingly disempowered. And um, nine years I've been listening to students tell me stories of disempowerment. And I just cannot bear what the system does anymore. I just, I just think we have to become committed to really seriously taking to task our educational system, not just talking about it and publishing papers on that and making individual careers, academic careers on that. I just can't bear to do this mm -hmm. because it is the, at the expense of actually perpetuating the same system. So the one thing that saved me in communism, which was the life of the mind, I found it to be um, a betrayal when it is not joined to, with a strong and discerning heart, which is equally cultivated. And so the education that we promise as liberating becomes oppressive in a different way. And I've come to see this to the point where I just cannot um, do it and, and continue developing a career. So I left a tenure position and associate professorship simply because... Um, I just can't do it in good conscience. And We're just publishing papers. So what's your plan? I don't know. Mm. I so don't you're at know. a crossroads here. I really am at a crossroad. I am an educator at heart. I always will be. I cannot stop teaching. I am hoping that I will find places and ways that have more integrity and that are really committed to addressing the questions that are rattling the world right now because the education that I'm seeing is not addressing mm -hmm. the issues of the world. Mm -hmm. There are disciplines and they're working in, in relative isolations from the realities of life on this planet. The real painful questions of humanity are not being tackled, not in ways that really engage the hearts of our students. The students want to be engaged. The students want to be working in the world. They want the intersection between theory and praxis. But our education is not committed to this intersection between theory and praxis, and it's not committed to bringing forth the hearts. We're scared of that in education. We don't know how to touch the heart, and so we try to stay clear of it. And that in itself is a betrayal. So I have to find a way. I don't know. How do you see this, the result of this segregated education of just the mind without the heart? How do you see that manifesting itself to these students once they leave school? Well, I've seen a range of things. I've seen us cultivate arrogance, which is very sad because we don't need more arrogance in this world. It is, to a large extent, arrogance along with ignorance that has led us to where we are now. We've got a world that's so split. We're talking about culture wars, and we have arrogance meeting ignorance and clashing and each pretending to be better than the other and you know we are cultivating that in academia unwittingly unintentionally we end up cultivating that mm -hmm. so arrogance is one outcome other 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 uh, excuse me other outcomes are despair mm -hmm. i've i've met and talked to many despairing students who feel that they came because they wanted to understand the world's better and they're leaving more perplexed than really understanding mm -hmm. um, a lot of students come and say how does everything that I've learned really apply? I, I, what can I really do in this world that makes a difference? Mm -hmm. Theory and praxis, they have to begin to speak to each other and not as some sort of marginal exercise as a practicum at the end of a career mm -hmm. in academia, but really as the context of, it, of just about every course. 
And so I am very heartened by various endeavors which I'm seeing um, um, around the world to establish spiritually inspired universities mm -hmm. that are committed to bringing together theory and praxis, interdisciplinary approaches, and the mm -hmm. concept of service to the most painful questions of humanity from the beginning to the end of education and developing the capacities, the capabilities to do that and engaging both minds and hearts um, throughout. Mm -hmm. So um, these are, to me, the most promising educational endeavors and um, I hope to be able to contribute to them. I hope to be able to support them. I hope to be able to see them flourish. Um, I know that sooner or later this will have to happen because mm -hmm. our young people are feeling betrayed. So many students came to me and they said, in the particular program where I taught, there's a lot of talk about spirituality. It's not as though we don't talk about spirituality. A lot of other places will not even touch spirituality with a long stick. Our mm -hmm. program used to talk about spirituality, but the students would come and say, you know, we're just tired of all this talk. Where is the walk? Where is the walk? What, what, what can you teach me about serving people, about serving humanity? What are you guys doing in that realm? Mm -hmm. and, and I knew that these questions were very poignant and very mm -hmm. relevant. And they had every right to be asked. And that's why I just had to. So did you try to push the envelope at all when you were? Very much. Nine energy? years, that's what I did. Uh -huh. Nine years. We, did, uh, we, live, uh, we live in an uh, area in rural West Georgia where there is a real flood of uh, mostly undocumented Hispanic immigrants, which form large sections of marginalized communities. And so uh, for the last six years, I've been working with the local marginalized Hispanic immigrant community with my students, developing forms of praxis that seem to make sense um, in the context of everything that we were studying theoretically. And it was a very heartening um, process for myself and also for my students. And what really made me leave is realizing that the particular educational institution that I worked in under had no commitment to such a process and really did not support it. And so you can only go so far when the institution does not commit itself to such values mm -hmm. and is not willing to put itself out to develop this. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and there is not an academic vision that that is an integral part of education. Mm -hmm. And so the students love it, but it is very hard to do that against uh, the tide of, mm -hmm. of actually the split and uh, and you feel like you're patching holes and, and putting band-aids and it's just not right. And, and what do I tell to my students? I mean, this is not, the 21st century is not a one-man show anymore. We cannot do it as individuals. I don't believe that. Every individual is called on and we all have to step forward, but we have to work in teams. And we have to find teams of, uh, of fellow thinkers who are committed who are willing and capable of working together. It is not about the charismatic individual leader anymore. And so um, that's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I know, I've, uh, I know I've found teams across the country and across the world. It, they're not necessarily in the same context, in the same geographic place, so there's some very logistical questions issues and there. issues and problems yeah. that have to be resolved and I'm sure it will all get worked out in time mm -hmm. but uh, it, it is it can be done in no less than teams of mm -hmm. people who really realize how pressing this challenge is mm -hmm. and are committed to meeting it
educationally and socially. And really, at the heart of all of it is a spiritual understanding and mm. commitment. Mm. I'm very clear about that. Well, Elena, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and good luck in your search for the right institution for your further pursuits. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful opportunity for me. Thank you to reflect and to share with the friends who will be listening to your program. Thank you for having this program. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Elena Mustakova Pozart, a Bulgarian educator who came to the U.S. when communism fell in Eastern Europe to focus her doctoral studies on critical consciousness. To hear other interviews or to subscribe to a podcast of A Baha'i Perspective, go to the website abahaiperspective.com. If you want information on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. She looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire, alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get warm Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? How else will we Do we glow? 
on my doorstep looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded, it's all tattered and torn. For a moment I wonder what on earth it might be, till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Sent me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped Justice is allowing fairness to guide your actions and decisions. Justice is someone being judged individually, not based on the capacity of another, which also means that people receive what they need to survive or accomplish a goal. Justice is being open to ideas that are best for a given situation. First and foremost, truthfulness is being able to be honest to oneself. And only then is one able to proceed with extracting honesty and truthfulness from others. Patience. First thing I think of when I think of patience is my son Adam. He's developmentally delayed and even the smallest thing takes so much time to accomplish. Every day is a test for me to remember, stop, take a deep breath, be patient because when I'm not patient, the frustration is overwhelming. And when I'm patient, I can enjoy the journey without worrying so much about the destination. Kindness to me is an important aspect in my life. Kindness means being respectful, making someone feel better when they're down, and allowing someone to take your place. Being kind to others makes me feel better about myself.
zu sein. Oh, come and announce a joyful tidings. He that was hidden from mortal eyes is come. Service to me is any activity that is performed in the spirit of benefiting others uh, for their common good. And this is to me like worshiping God, which is our purpose. Forgiveness is about opening your heart and acknowledging that we are all human and sometimes make mistakes. Forgiving gives us an opportunity to cleanse our spirits because in the process, we let go of resentment, anger, and hostility, all ungodly sentiments. By forgiving, we replace these emotions with love, tolerance, and acceptance. Sometimes we forget that while it is important to forgive others, forgiving ourselves for our errors and shortcomings is just as important. I know that's where I have trouble. When I truly forgive myself for a mistake I made, it allows me to heal, to grow, and become my true spiritual self. Humility is like the opposite of conceit. Humility to me is a virtue not easily practiced by many because it involves putting others ahead of you. You know, not always thinking about what makes you stand out in front of others, but that you are just a part of a larger plan. You are playing a role in this age of mankind. 
Everyone knows what it's like to be a teenager. It's a time when anything that anybody says to you or about you will stay in your brain forever and make you overanalyze yourself for hours on end, especially if it's something the least bit critical, which is why tactfulness is so important. It's okay if you don't like something, and it's okay if you want to voice that, but do so with tact and save us a couple hours of overanalyzation. Responsibility. This is something I have forever struggled with. Whether it be doing my chores as a child, following through with my commitments, paying bills on time, or even just making simple choices. But the more I've strived and learned to act responsibly, the more trustworthy I've become, the more dependable I've become, and most importantly, the more aligned with God I feel. Tolerance is a good place for me to start. If I can be tolerant of a situation first, then I get to follow it through with other virtues like love and patience and kindness um, that support my act of being tolerant. Well, courage to me is a way to get through fears and troubles. When I'm scared, I always tell my parents how I feel with confidence and bravery. They help me work out my problems. After that, I feel more courageous. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.